it's early. It's our, yeah, it's it's early days for all this stuff, so there's, there's still a lot to go. We should ask Dr. Ruman what he thinks of this. Uh, what about it? Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, so this is. I mean, these are this is pretty hot stuff right So hey everybody, welcome to episode 139 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Dimitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we have Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. Home of the 2017 <laughs> Apple Worldwide Developer Conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Speaking of San Jose, California, well, it's not San Jose, but I just watched Bullet on the Turner Classic Movie Channel. <laughs> what does that have to do with San Jose? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with San Jose, as I just said, but it actually is it's filmed in uh, San Francisco. It's one of the first oh, movies okay. first movies filmed there, apparently. I was reading the, some of the, the liner notes, and uh, that's the one where Steve McQueen has that 10-minute car chase on the streets of San Francisco, hmm. which then okay. became a TV show called The Streets of San Francisco. So we have some follow-up items this week. Um, Jaime, you have uh, some uh, experience with CarPlay this week? Yeah, I've never, week? I'd never used it before, and I just wanted to sort of add my two cents in. Uh, the context for this was I was uh, out last week. You know, I was not on this episode uh, previous because I was visiting my uh, employer's headquarters in Portland, and um, I had plans to take the train back to Seattle, uh, as did many of my colleagues who work remotely, but also live in Seattle. And then we discovered that, oh, there was a mudslide of some sort. So all the trains were canceled. We tried nice. to get the uh, Bolt bus. Nope, that was all sold out. And we eventually settled on renting a GMC Yukon, which is a fantastic vehicle, by the way. It's a, it's a rather nice SUV, uh, kind of a van-like experience. Uh, and it had CarPlay. So we, we got all giddy because like, oh, great. You know, we get an opportunity to try CarPlay. We've never tried it. Um, a little bit difficult to, to, to sort of understand without the instructions as to how you connect to the GMC Yukon. But once we did, it was great. We I was uh, riding shotgun, so I got an opportunity to play with the maps. I got an opportunity to try out the, um, I was like the music DJ for the whole ride there, sort of uh, letting people see the, the dark, twisted interior of my playlist. <laughs> and uh, th that went pretty well with Siri integration went pretty well too. Um, like we didn't try to test the boundaries of it. Like, uh, that CarPlay versus Android auto video that I think we talked about before. Um, and it was overall pretty nice. Um, except for the fact that it seems to not really be meant to be used in a co-passenger mode, which is what right, I was, yeah. right? Like the driver was driving and, and he's doing yeah. his thing and I was doing stuff and I was trying to do other things on my phone at the same time. And so you could see the display going in and out of, you know, if I was no longer in music and I wanted to switch over to like Twitter or something to post about what we were doing in our little adventure, uh, it, it gets really confusing real fast because it throws this little blue bar at the top that makes it look like you're like in a phone call or sharing your location kind of thing. And that part was it is nice. I, I understand why they do it because, you know, if you are using it as the driver, they don't want you tinkering around with that stuff. You're supposed to be using the display panel with its nice large buttons, not messing around with your phone at the same time. But uh, Yeah, they do seem to have that sort of, I was going to say, singular experience. I was going to ask if you kind of noticed that. Like, I notice when I'm listening to things like uh, Overcast and then I switch over to a navigation app or whatever, it would stop the audio. So I couldn't listen to the podcast and, you know, look at the maps or whatever when I was, when I was navigating around. Um, but I guess you played a lot of dev with the hair metal for the guys, right? <laughs> we definitely had stuff on there. Um, maybe they've upgraded it since because, uh, like, it does pause the audio 
when it's trying to speak the directions to you. But it um, once it's finished that small clip of like turn right here to get on the highway, it immediately goes back to the music. So so you were using the navigation that comes with the maps as opposed to like say a Waze app or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's correct. Mm-hmm. So we're using Apple because, I mean, we used Apple Maps because all we needed to do was literally find the nearest highway after we uh, found the nearest uh, gas station so we could gas up the, right, the GMC right. Yukon. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, there's pretty much only one freeway that goes between Portland and Seattle, right? Yeah, it's just, it just I-5. Yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> So what is it? What does a train trip cost between cost between Seattle and like? Is it comparable to an airfare, for instance? Uh, airfare is pretty cheap on a rather small, like forty minute flight. Uh, regional jet. It's probably like a hundred dollars for a flight, and it was like eighty dollars for a train ticket. Mm-hmm. Maybe a hundred and ten if you do the business class, which I highly recommend. Right. Yeah. No. For sure. Yeah. I've done business class to Ottawa. It's it's uh, it's surprisingly little amount of money to kick up and and get better service and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like actual knives and forks and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. No. There was interesting. There was interesting post on Twitter. Uh, this uh, a video that somebody put on why as to why trains are so expensive and because and that's why I asked the question about you know the cost of the airfare versus the train. Like, was it comparable? Because the trains would seem like it would be more relaxing and that you would think it might be cheaper, but there's a lot more people involved in, in driving a train from one place to another, uh, in, like in terms of infrastructure and the fact that there's such a low demand for it that, that the price becomes uh, comparable to airfare. And, you know, but some people prefer that kind of slow travel, right? And you never have to worry about the train being overbooked and facing the consequences of that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, about as far as they got in terms of accosting me was like they – Unlike in coach class for the train, um, really, like they really don't care who's there. Um, for business class, they like scan your actual ticket, which thankfully I had right. in my back pocket to do that. But otherwise, it's pretty good. Like you can get a lot of coding done. You can listen to podcasts such as this one. This is about three and a half hour train trip. Um, but the road trip, as uh, unexpected as it was, our little escape from Portland trip was was pretty good because if nothing else, I got a chance to try out CarPlay. Yeah, so it's cool. One of the ladies from um, that came to RWDevCon last week is from Audrey Tam, is from Australia, and so she came into landed in Vancouver and took the train. There's a train called the Great Canadian that goes across Canada from. It only goes as far as Montreal, I think, because they got rid of all the uh, the lines uh, um, east of Montreal, but. Um, or most of them, anyway. Uh, but yeah, she said, I, "I've always wanted to do that trip. Going to be kind of a cool, cool way to see Canada without having to, you know, do the hassle of driving and that kind of stuff. And you can hopefully get on and off as as you like." But apparently, she said it was kind of they they kind of des- it's designed in such a way that you go through the Rockies in the morning or during daylight, and so so you have to leave Vancouver in the middle of the morning or you know it's weird times. Yeah. Anyway, I always wanted to do that kind of stuff. I think train travel is cool, but I'm disappointed it costs as much as it does. Well, perhaps one day in the future we'll have the Hyperloop going between Seattle and Toronto, and I can go have lunch with you mm-hmm. real easily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like you know, even even though it takes like six days or whatever, it's still that might be a nice nice, uh, nice way to travel, right? That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. All right. There's also one I think that goes north called the Polar Bear Express. I don't know if they still run that one too, but if you're crazy about snow. <laughs> um, 
All right. So next we have. So yeah, the next piece of follow up is uh, the. We talked about this device a while ago when the um, new trackbar um, Mac Pro. Actually, I guess it was even before that when the when the original MacBooks were announced with just the single USB C port, or thund- and now there's it's Thunderbolt three, but USB C configuration. Um, and the new MacBook Pros came out um, what six months ago. Uh, there was a Kickstarter project for a hyperdrive, which is a, a series of. It's like a bar that sits on the side of your your computer. It's about four inches long. Plugs in, in dual ports, uh, so it plugs into one side of the, uh, on I guess on the left hand side of the MacBook Pro, and it has pass through USBs. It has a mini SD card slot, an SD card slot, a couple of U- traditional USBs, you know, the USB A style. And it also has an HDMI port on the back, which would be kind of cool if you're if you're missing those kind of ports. Um, it was good; it worked really well. You know, I could charge my Mac and I could you know run Ethernet through it and that kind of stuff, which we have to do with a dongle in our in our company. But what I was really disappointed by, I'd love to say it was great. Um, there actually there was one sort of OCD um, thing about it in that the color doesn't quite match the MacBook Pro. Um, and it doesn't quite sit flush when you plug it in. And you'd think it would just sit, you know, perfectly parallel. But if you're an OCD person, that would drive you nuts. But what, what the, the deal breaker for me was that when I was trying to build to a device passing through the USB-C slots, Xcode couldn't see the devices. So we tried it with we tried it with a regular USB cable, and we tried it with a USB-C cable, and in, in either case, it worked. So that's that's it, developers stay away <laughs> yeah bummer about that one uh, that that last bit i think definitely is a deal breaker for a lot of folks um, yeah yeah and i think you're underselling the not quite flush uh, i think you should put the uh, show notes something in there for for those of you driving at home related to your tweet because it's i mean it looked like several millimeters not flush yeah, yeah. So, and I asked a, a friend of mine uh, at the at the office wanted to try it on his machine, so he plugged it in, and he found the same thing. It wasn't it wasn't like it was my logic board was slightly askew or whatever. It was the same deal on his. It didn't sit flush. So, mm-hmm. wah wah, <laughs> bummer. Yeah, that's too bad. So there there are other products out there, but we'll just have, have to see how they how they fare out. Okay, cool. And uh, just a quick uh, follow up again from last week. We talked about my pick was the RX Swift. Uh, book on reactive programming coming out of raywinnerlich.com and uh, Marin tweeted out uh, this week that and I think it'll probably be still be available by the time people get the show on Saturday maybe for a week or two more uh, he's giving chapter 7 and 8 are available for free if you want to you know check out the book uh, he's got them linked on his site I'll put a link here to his uh, his uh, website at rx-marin.com and uh, you can link back to those I think they actually link back to the Ray, Ray, Ray Winnerlich site so check them out if you're into Rx Swift and you want to see what the book's about yeah i i picked up a physical deadwood copy of the book that uh i want to go through and sort of leaf through and sort of try to understand and absorb some of the right yeah the the possibilities with it Mm -hmm. did you you have it in hand yet or i do it came rather fast i've ordered on amazon.com so it was prime delivered in Uh, like two days right right good old amazon all right Yeah, it, I think the best deal, though, for people who are really interested in, is I recommend the PDF version of the book because, uh, you know, then if uh, when if something happens with 3.1 or 4.0 or whatever, you know the folks at RayWinnerLake.com will, will uh, as quickly as they can, uh, carve out an update for it. So 
I mean, it seems like the the best deal of all is uh, to attend RWDFCon. Like, I don't think anybody's promising that they'll always have free books, but it, it, they're starting a pattern. <laughs> There's a trend, right? It's been a couple of years that they've done it in a row. Yeah, so yeah, yep. you, you get to enjoy the, the value of the conference, and maybe they'll throw something on top. And you get to meet all the authors, too. And if you were, and they also they also did this year, they had, the, I mean, I called the, the demo sessions labs. That's what they called them in previous years. But um, they actually had, after each, each one of them, they just sort of emulated the WWC style where if you wanted to sit down with Marin at a round table and sort of go through some code or whatever or you know any Tammy or any other speakers that you were uh, interested in talking to they would they had lab sessions where you could actually go and you know skip out on a session or and sit down with them and go through some some things that you're interested in so which is another seller, selling point I guess for that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right um, so this is a, fo- a double follow-up um, Last week we talked about imagination um, technologies getting a stinger of a notice from Apple that uh, Apple was going to be developing their own. I forget which chip that was, uh, uh, GPU last week, GPU. right? Yep. Yeah, and uh, it, as soon as that was announced, um, imagination technology stock dove by 70% down. Um, and there was a couple of articles this week. Uh, I missed the one on Dialog, I think it was the company. I'm not sure what chip they make. but uh, So there's two posts here I've got for the show notes. One is on... Um, uh, the fact that Apple's going to be doing, doing their own power chip, power management chip, I guess that's the dialogue one, and um, Synapse, Synaptics, I think they make the force touch, something to do with the force touch display, maybe Yeah, a they or make something. touch panels in general, like touch pads right. or, or uh, track pads, things like that. Yeah, so the two articles there, the second article talks about Synapse one, and it had something to do with the fact that Apple was a little miffed about them. Um, as soon as Apple in, introduced the 3D touch uh, technology, they turned around and... and uh, did something similar for the folks over at um, uh, what are those guys called? Samsung. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, so just interesting that, that to see that um, Apple is um, bringing uh, a lot of the technology development in house, right? What do you think that, about that? Yeah, I think that's a real interesting one. I actually have friends of both those companies. I got to you know find out what's going on there. But um, the power management one is is very interesting uh, because. Power management chips are, are very different than the types of chips that Apple has worked with before, uh, like the the microprocessors. So those are those are digital chips. The microprocessors are, are you know big digital chips where it's all about just cramming as many transistors onto a chip as you possibly can and and getting them to run as fast as they, as you possibly can. And there's there's all sorts of uh, tools that are made by companies like Synopsys or Cadence uh, that are used for for building those things. And and it's you know a lot of it is it's almost programming rather than chip design. You write a you write your logic in in a language like Verilog or VHDL or something like that, and and there's a whole flow that synthesizes your logic all the way down to the layout of the actual transistors on the chip. Uh, and so you know that's a lot of the the semiconductor industry is that kind of stuff. And and all that when you hear about the very advanced te- technologies, it's it's for doing that kind of stuff where it's all about speed and capacity. But power management is different. Um, and analog chips in in general are different than than those digital chips because they really are meant to interact with the real world in some way, and so they have very different criteria. Uh, they tend not to be as as uh, as small. Uh, they, uh, they tend to be a lot bigger because they need to be able to handle the kind of signals and electrical you know pulses that come from the outside world. Uh, and uh, power management chips in general have to sometimes go up to you know five volts or twelve volts even, uh, which are much higher than than what you normally get on a say a microprocessor. So the techniques for building those are very very different and very very specialized. And there are companies that really just do nothing but do these power management chips. 
Uh, I used to work at one actually who who did who was, mm-hmm. who was like that. Uh, so it's kind of surprising to hear that Apple, which is you know more of a obviously more of a general purpose company, uh, getting involved in something as specialized as that. But I, I guess it makes sense at some point. I mean, they they tend to be you know if, if a if a chip or any part is is very specialized, that's a bottleneck for them, and it's a you know it's a it's a it's an expense for Apple that uh, maybe they can reduce by bringing in house, but. I don't know. It takes, from what I know, it takes a long time to build up that expertise. So right, maybe they've right. been thinking about it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wondered. I mean, like, because you know how there's this, this pressure to buy American these days, right? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, I wondered if, and maybe wrongly so, that 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 was part of the motivation. Because aren't these other companies like Imagination Technologies is a UK company, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, Synaptics and Dialog are as well, or are they are they American? Uh, yeah, I know Dialog is uh, probably in the UK. Uh, I'm not sure about the other ones, but uh, actually, I thought Synaptics was here, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, I, I'm not sure that's so much of an issue in in this case because. Just like the whole rest of the chip industry, semiconductor industry, it, there's a disconnect between where the chips are designed and where they're manufactured. Pretty much all chips, not not all, but you know, a huge percentage of chips these days are manufactured in, in China or Taiwan, right. uh, whereas quite a few of them are still designed here in the U.S. So there's lots and lots of what are called fabulous companies who are just design houses. They just design the chip, then they ship, ship it off to Taiwan or somewhere to get it built. So So having Apple do the design in-house, they still have to do the manufacturing somewhere, and they're probably going to do it in the same place that they get everything else manufactured, either TSMC or, or Samsung or some, somewhere like that. Uh, so I'm not sure that that makes sense in, or that that applies in this case, but yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things about these power chips is that since it doesn't use the latest and the greatest technology most of the time, uh, sometimes they will run these in, in smaller fabs, you know, smaller, older fabs that are still kicking around since, you know, the 90s or even earlier. So so it is possible that they'll buy a fab somewhere here in the U.S. and, and do them there. Could be. Hmm. Like fab fabricator? Fab stands for, yeah, uh, fa- fabrication facility is what it stands for, I guess. Okay. Yep. Did you guys see that tweet about um, the undercover college grad who went to work in uh, the factories and where Apple makes the iPhones? No. Yeah, and I mean, basically, the the TLDR was she said that um, it didn't. She didn't think that it would be, and if the work came left China and came to the United States, it would be replaced by robots rather than people. So. Oh yeah, I think there's zero zero percent chance that any of those companies will come back to the United States. Right, I mean, right. It's pretty much impossible at this point. Hmm. I'm amazed that Apple, I mean, like it makes sense, but I'm amazed that Apple is at the scale where they can do this sort of thing, right? Like everybody is trying to commoditize these sort of parts and have multiple suppliers and buy it as cheap as possible. And, and here, I guess Apple's like, well, uh, not only do we want to control this part of the experience, it, it's sort of that whole vertical stack sort of way that they do, but it makes enough business sense to say, yeah, we can, we can fabricate this sort of stuff because we'll have a bazillion iPhones and a bazillion iPads and Apple watches and MacBooks and MacBook Pros and iMacs and all sorts of things. Um, I'm, I'm rather impressed that it's at that scale. That's true. They, I mean, they must have a lot of money that going out to that's going out to these third parties. But I also wondered too if if it's the supply and demand thing. I mean, the biggest problem we've had with Apple technologies in the last you know years, every forever almost it seems, is anytime a new product comes out, there's a waiting list for the for the devices, right? And that's usually because of the, um, supply of parts, right? 
You know, it's not like not like they couldn't. Again, like you know, they're they're like the the mega corporation. I'm sure they could assemble as many as they could, but uh, maybe when they're we're waiting for these, you know, 3D touch displays to be manufactured, it's part of the problem, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And on the positive side, if they do it in house, they won't end up with um, you know, occasions where they're fighting their supplier in. Um, Right, public right. relations area as they are with Qualcomm. Um, yep. Right. Yeah. That's another one. That's another company. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, uh, very briefly, Qualcomm was one of these suppliers for, I believe, LTE chips, if I'm not mistaken, for uh, the yeah. iPhone, and uh, their chip was faster and better than I want to say Intel's. Um, but uh, understandably, Apple doesn't want you like comparing and trying to figure out which supplier uh, of of that component you have in your particular phone. So they, I think, they downclocked or uh, yeah. Whatever technique they use, they made the Qualcomm chip operate at the same uh, performance level as the Intel chip, and Qualcomm got very upset about that because, uh, not surprisingly, they're very proud of their their technology. So um, that's what I was referring to. Yeah, I think in one of the one of these two posts I put up here, I, I did remember seeing something about the Qualcomm versus Apple thing. I think that yeah, it's it's the last paragraph of the first article. Um, uh, Qualcomm says that basically they've been involved in building Apple phones for Apple iPhones for a long time. So I don't know how many years. So I, I mean, what iPhone four was the first LTE, right? I believe it was yeah, the five because so. I remember buying five? buying one was off contract four, because I I couldn't I couldn't live without LTE. Still can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny, like uh, you know, I, where I where I work downtown, and uh, you know, I had to go some to some labs for tests and get X rays and stuff like that last weekend. Uh, I'm still amazed that there are parts of downtown, like like there's a under underneath uh, all those tall buildings, there's kind of a connected series of tunnels called Path, and it's like a big giant mall underneath. There's all kinds of food courts and stuff like that, but uh, it's amazing how poor. Uh, cell signals are down there sometimes, right? Like I, I was standing in one one part of the office, uh, one lab today or yesterday, and uh, there was like no signal at all, right, on my phone, which is totally weird to be right in the middle of downtown Toronto, right? I mean, it sounds yeah. like maybe that's a secondary place as a bunker in like nuclear war and fallout, <laughs> <Fair day, laughs> considering it's in yeah. downtown Toronto. I bet that's really important. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There was one building I used to work in regularly um, near the Eaton Center. Uh, I don't want to name the company, but um, when I was there, uh, I used to have to, and this is back in, I mean, I probably had a BlackBerry back then, but yeah, for some reason, this one particular building, didn't matter what floor you were on, you just couldn't get a signal. I had to use a landline to get out to check my voicemail and stuff like that. Really weird. Yeah. Anywho, back to the uh, topics at hand. Let's see. Um... Yeah, this is an interesting story. This came out in, uh, it was published today in uh, 9to5Mac, um, and it was about a, a patch that Apple had put into their phones last year, but apparently there's something about motion sensors that could detect what your passcode was, especially if you used a four-digit passcode. Um, I didn't quite get the technology behind it, but um, some there was some way that, um, I, what are these motion sensors? Are they like alarm systems and stuff like that? Or do you No, I think know? it's more like the accelerometer and the motion chip etc like the things that oh, would that help you with the health kit and stuff like oh this is right like i took this many steps or you know i'm holding this phone level uh, when i'm using a leveler you know to put the picture frame up the exact right way sort of thing i believe that's what they're talking about when they're saying um they were able to use like the motion sensors to figure out so they were leaking were like leaking uh data from um in terms of how the phone was being used well, it says it, in the article, it says, quote, a neural network was used to identify correlations between motion sensor data and tapped pins, 
Oh, and, okay. a, and a browser JavaScript exploit was used to run the malware. So you'd run right. something in your browser, and there'd be some malware JavaScript hidden in the back, background monitoring your, your motion sensor, I guess, uh, as you typed your, your password, and it would report it back. That's pretty crazy stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. Like, it sort of makes sense because it's not as if the pin uh, keypad is randomized, right? Which would defeat right. this attack. It's like that one is always in the same spot, and the nine yeah, is always yeah. in the same spot. Right. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. Yeah, I thought it was maybe somebody was watching your, the motion of your phone. But, yeah, I guess it's the motion of your phone they could tell. So apparently Apple has um, patched it, but, and this is back in iOS 9.3. Hmm. And interestingly, the people who found the exploit also let the other phone manufacturers know. And Google said they were aware of the issue but has not provided a fix yet. This is like going back a year, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so... So we, we talked about exploits in the past, you know, that there are a number of exploits that you hear about, uh, that we hear about, I guess. Um, and there are a number that we don't hear about. Uh, I think we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, right? Um, yeah, weird one. So that's iOS 9.3. I highly recommend people not be on iOS 9.3. You <laughs> you really should be upgrading to iOS 10.3 or whatever the latest is as of this. Now, why would we want to do that, I mean? Well, beyond the security bits, um, Clips by Apple, the the fancy new app that we talked about, is available on iOS 10.3. So you're missing out if you don't upgrade. So just like people tend to upgrade to new versions of iOS that include new emoji, I think hopefully for the very same reason, this is the carrot that will get people to upgrade to 10.3. Now, surely you mean 10.3.1. I'm sure there is, and I know I'm going to check my phone and make sure I'm on this too. What do you mean? <laughs> we, the, we talked 10.3. about this last week. There's a beta of 10.3.2 now. Oh no! Oh. Well, we, we talked about 10.3 in the beginning of the show last week, and uh, I think a friend of the show, Sean Marston, uh, said that uh, he was having trouble with 10.3, and by the time we recorded the show, 10.3.1 had been released as a quick patch. So maybe that was part of the part of the solution for those folks. But I want to go back to the, the, the story about the security and the motion sensor thing. Um, a friend of mine works in the security industry, like I mean, physical security, like security guards and stuff like that. And he was telling me a couple of years ago, and, you know, of course, I was listening with incredulous. I was incredulous about what he was saying. But he was telling me that he knew of technology where they could see what was the traffic from your phone. Right, whether it was an iPhone or a BlackBerry or, a, or a, an Amazon device, and I, I kind of you know put on my Apple hat and said, "No way, Apple's got the secure enclave and they're encrypting this and whatever and TLS and blah blah blah." Right, but apparently a story came out of of uh, Ottawa this week, um, or it's been the last couple of weeks. Our RCMP, which is like our federal police. Um, have a technology that they've admitted to having that lets them uh, spoof a cell tower. So they, with these, with their equipment, they can spoof and fool your phone into thinking the cell tower is a real cell tower, and then they can watch the traffic going back and forth between your phone and the rest of the world, right? Now, they say that the story today was that they say they, did, they only use that when they've got a warrant to sort of... Uh, to, to use this, but they also said that they're only using it to locate the actual phones. Like, you know, this criminal over here has this cell phone number, blah, 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 right? As opposed to looking at the traffic is going on. Have you guys ever heard of anything like this like this before? No, but it seems like it's, it's possible for them to figure out where you're connecting to, but right. it's still secured by TSL, right? So it should all, yeah. be, should all be encrypted, so they can't actually see your content. I'd be much more worried and, and nervous if, if the story was that they figure out a way to crack SSH. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no. I think, well, see, that was, that was the thing is apparently, so there, there's, I mean, the, the, the news story was that certain people in, or uh, people in, in our government, which is Ottawa, right? It's our main, that's like your Washington, D.C. They're, um, 
that they're monitoring people there. And I guess, you know, politicians or whatever are getting up in arms about it, right? Uh, or even security people are getting up in arms about it. But it's interesting that, you know, you would never think that, I mean, I guess you would think if you watched sci-fi television that this all this stuff was possible, but you, you kind of think it's that CSI and all that kind of nonsense you see on TV or James Bond and things are, are kind of fake. But to actually have someone admit that they're they're using this technology, it's kind of clever if you think about it, right? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, these days, at least here in the States, it's probably easier to just buy it from the from your isp that's true that's true which brings up the topic of tunnel bear yeah no (laughs) yeah let's try it out see if it works (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i use it on and off when i when i want to do something that i don't want you know anybody prying eyes to know i'll fire it up anywho okay um enough about that eh so yeah, so uh, so have you tried Eclipse yet? Yet, Jaime, I I know I tried it. I kind of like, I look at it like Snapchat. Like I'm not sure what I would use this for. It it is um, kind of interesting from a like technology standpoint. If you try using their filters, like I'm I'm pretty heavily impressed by the yeah. comic book filter, which sort of live makes it look like you were uh, you know comic book style video, and it, and it does it like while you're recording, so it's not like oh well record it and then look after the fact post processing. It's it's showing you a live preview of that, and I think Tammy would probably like this because it reminds me a lot of the. Um, the Telltale Games series, like I, I'm pretty sure she said she's played the Walking Dead version of yeah, that, that yeah. has that same mm-hmm. kind of stylized, cell-shaded sort of look to it. So um, you're right. It is very Snapchatty. Like there are, it's not like a difficult UI to figure out, but some of it I find slightly unintuitive. And maybe that's because I'm not a Snapchat user. Um, right, right. So maybe it's, it's meant to echo and mimic that UI pattern. But it's not difficult to figure out either. Like, you know, I've made like a couple of mistakes, but I quickly figure out, yeah. oh, this is where I'm supposed to, you know, go to throw away uh, this clip or this is how I edited or this is how I enabled the the music tunes stuff. So you can add music through uh, essentially like iTunes type integration. You can use right, your own soundtrack music and thing, yeah. that stuff. Yeah. yeah. It has the speech to text or yeah, speech to text technology as well. So you can actually, as you're recording yourself, you can add the words you're saying get turned into like sort of subtitles as well, right? Yeah, I was not quite as impressed with that, and maybe it's just you know the way that I speak. Maybe it's challenging, or maybe I was in a it was not a noisy environment, but maybe there was like not the greatest acoustic environment. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious on trying that out again with one of those little uh, microphone attachments, look the little portable ones that you can get for the iPhone, oh, uh, really? and yeah, see yeah. and see if it'll do better there because it 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 got okay, but it was like ninety for ninety five percent of the way. And I uh, if there is a way to change the text after the fact, I desperately would like some help doing that because I couldn't figure it out in the UI if it's possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And speaking of the Walking Dead game that you talked about, we actually interviewed Melissa Hutchinson on episode 62 of Roundabout Podcast. That's the, uh, she's the, uh, the voice of the young girl in the Walking Dead game. And by young girl, you mean Clementine? Yeah. Yeah. The best child character in all <laughs> media ever and forever. Yes. Cool. That's awesome. I'm going to have to go listen wow. to that episode. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I'm sure you can tweet out to Melissa Hutchinson and tell her that, in fact. She'd mm-hmm. be pleased to hear it. Mm-hmm. I was a little worried when I went to the Roundabout uh, Creative Chaos website and did a search for Walking Dead, because you can just imagine what would come up there, right? <laughs> it's like searching for code or <laughs> Objective-C or Swift on our website. Like You're going to get a ton of results. Exactly, exactly. Right. Yep. But luckily, she comes up as number one. So there you go. All right. Um, where were we? So we're at the main. Yeah, let's just get into some main stuff here. What do you got? What do you got first, Jaime? 
I don't know that I have a ton to say about it, but something that's relatively fresh and new is something called React XP by Microsoft. Um, you know, this whole reactive programming thing is something we've talked about before. Um, notably, Microsoft is apparently the originator of the um, reactive extensions, that whole yeah, RX yeah. thing, like, you know, where RX Java, RX Swift, and RX so forth comes from. Um, they've come up with this... I don't know what to call it. I don't know if it's like like a plugin or a shim or what have you framework maybe for React Native, right? So we've talked about React Native as a that way to write, uh, you know, try to write your app once and it turns, you know, it runs this like little, I don't know, this little engine that turns your JavaScript into like actual UI views and actual UI table view type stuff. So you, you get the performance of, of native, but the convenience of uh, you know, familiarity with JavaScript if you're like a web developer and or being able to share a lot of code between iOS and Android and, and the web. Uh, but apparently it's not enough there because, uh, as you can imagine, UI button doesn't exist on Android. Sure, there there is an equivalent. Um, and that's what React XP is trying to address, where you write to the React XP button and it does the magic of figuring out, oh, I'm on Android. Great. I'll make that into... I actually don't know what I assume it's something like button. I forget. Um, right, and right. on, on iOS, it becomes a UI button. So, mm-hmm. uh, th- this is like fresh, fresh off the press and we'll, we'll have the link in the show notes. Uh, I looked a little bit at the docs. doesn't seem too hard to understand, even though I'm not like a react native person. So there, there are aspects that I just kind of hand wave on. Um, as with like a lot of things, I don't know that I necessarily uh, recommend doing this sort of thing unless you're very careful with your situation. Um, you know, uh, React Native is open source, but it is you know predominantly through uh, one corporation, Facebook in this case. And now you've collected another corporation to your Pokemon list here with mm-hmm, Microsoft mm-hmm. involved if you go this route. So I think consider that very carefully uh, for your projects. Right. Huh. Okay. So what do you got here about Facebook? Oh, keep <laughs> keep the tune here with Facebook. So there's is a blog post by uh, Timac. I don't know his full name. Does he have his name linked here somewhere? He does not, but he is from Munich, according to his Twitter profile. And it's an analysis of the uh, the Facebook app for iOS. Um, and there's kind of a shadow pick here in that he uses an app called Grand Perspective to scrub through the, mm-hmm. uh, the IPA, I guess, here and give you a sort of like graphical view of like how much of this uh, space wise is being used by this thing versus that thing. And in this case, he's comparing two different versions of the uh, Facebook iOS app where I think what really sort of spurred this on is like, just like many of us, like I definitely noticed this when I upgraded recently, um, the Facebook app sort of ballooned quite substantially. Mm. And here, um, it's a little confusing, but if you look at the second image in the list here, that shows what the baseline was, where the Facebook binary, uh, sort of this big red square within the rectangle that makes up all of the the storage used, uh, was the predominant thing. And there's a little bit of this main.js bundle and then some assets that are sort of smaller, big noticeable squares. In the new version, that distribution has changed substantially where the face, what's considered the Facebook binary is, um, cut down to only 19 megabytes, but this FB shared framework is at 136 megabytes is the, like the biggest chunk of, uh, space being used and it's 
substantially bigger than the original Facebook binary. Uh, and then he goes through sort of looking at like how there's these weird duplicated resources and data files and um, images. Um, a little bit of fun that I had here where he analyzed some of the protocols, which, by golly, I need to use this somewhere in, in my professional life. There's an at protocol FB deprecated app module underscore do not use or you will be fired. <laughs> <It's the laughs> <name of the laughs> <protocol>. <laughs> nice. You know, I've dealt with some legacy code. I'm like, yeah, I, I really should go back and deprecate some stuff because it nothing gets you than a, a really good name and deprecate it. If that doesn't get your attention, do not use or you will be fired would certainly grab my attention. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so do you think this FB shared framework is uh, in preparation for doing things like, I don't know, a TVOS app or maybe partly the WatchKit app where, where you have a lot of shared code between your iOS app and your other apps uh, and you put all that shared code into a framework so you have access to it from all the different uh, different apps. And I wonder if that's what it is. Yeah, it could be because like, they have that messaging app too, right? If you want to do messaging, like instant messaging ah, right. on Facebook, yep. right? Yep. You yep. used to be able to do it in the app, and now they sprung it out to a separate app. So mm-hmm. maybe that uses part of the lo- like the login logic or something like that. Yep. Yep. You're there, right? Yeah. I mean, I, as a comparison point, a um, few episodes ago, we talked about how Uber was separating out its sort of app architecture, and they were heavily investing in making these components that could be reused by other apps, including their own Uber Eats apps. So that wouldn't surprise me if Facebook was doing this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And given yeah. what I know about Facebook's um, app architecture you know, as it is, and sort of like their whole team structure and how they do things foundationally. What I think what we're seeing here is a transitional step. It's like Facebook is sort of like very heavily sort of anti-architecture in general. It's sort of like, you know, they have tons of contributors to this thing, but there is no like uh, grand wise architect or architects that are saying, yay, verily, we've come up with the great scheme and, every, you know, all you worker bees, you, you got to implement within our fiefdom sort of thing. It's it's really much more collaborative than that. Uh, but I think the downside to that is, as they're probably running into is it becomes really hard to scale that sort of stuff up, especially with something as, uh, you know, anti-scale as an iOS app, right? Like iOS apps just don't scale very easily. So I think what we're seeing here with the shared framework is that it's a push towards commonalizing some of those things. And, and as you identified, Mark, uh, probably in an attempt to make it so they can do other apps or share stuff more readily between the different platforms that they have for, um, you know, Apple ecosystem support. And I think the duplication is probably a result of like, you know, when you want to make this sort of change, it it doesn't necessarily have to be all or nothing. It probably was easier to create this sort of like shim that everything sort of goes through, um, which probably meant to a lot of duplicated stuff that's not necessary. And I have to imagine though, they'll go back as time allows and start saying, oh, okay, well, we've refactored this thing or maybe rewrote this thing. So we no longer need this. We can dump off, you know, 10 megabytes here, five megabytes there sort of thing. Or someone forgot to do a clean build and left a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> we, could, we could send them a, a, like a coupon code for the Slender app and be like, yo, you can at least remove the duplicated images using this thing. It's like $50. There you go. Yeah. By the way, I clicked on the LinkedIn link on this um, author, Tim Mack, and it links to a guy named Alexandra Colucci, so, who lives in Munich. So maybe that's who he really is. Oh, so the AC stands for Alexander Colucci. And oh, maybe, was, maybe. I don't know what the Tim stands for. No clue. This almost seems like we just talked about this, didn't we? No, we talked about 
without a completely different sensor. It also confused sure. me as well. Yeah. So this is a this is the oh this is the article I was talking about that was in the New York Times and then uh, showed up in our Toronto Star this morning. Um, a colleague of mine posted this yesterday in our in our Slack channel. Um, yeah, something about. Uh, fingerprints not being all that good as far as uh, identifying who you are. I guess the way that um, the images are stored in the phone, um, they're kind of, I guess they're easy to replicate. They've they've figured out ways, I guess they've got a, where did I read that? That, um, There is a way for um, them to fake, like machine learning or something like that. The sort of TLDR um, bit is that the hypothesis here uh, is that you can have sort of like a like a master key or like a skeleton key. People are com- familiar with that concept where like um, it takes a very small reduced set of sort of things that can identify a fingerprint. Like it, like it, regardless of it being your particular fingerprint, just like a fingerprint has only so many different combinations. And given the fact that these fingerprint sensors on something like the touch ID sensor doesn't use your entire fingerprint for identification right, uses, right. you know, the, uh, my fingers are not really that big, but it doesn't come anywhere close to covering all of my, my fingertip. Uh, certainly not for anybody who has, you know, bigger fingers and, uh, sort of the analysis is done here is like there are something like nine, some very small eight to 10 images of a finger or something like that, that if you have those, you can sort of fake your way into fingerprint detection systems. Uh, It's worth saying here that Apple has said that the chance of a false match is uh, only one in 50,000 with um, Mm -hmm. this particular sort of system. Uh, Google declined to comment, but (laughs) <laughs> I think the the general idea seems kind of sound to me. If for no other reason that like there has to be some sort of give and take on these sorts of things, right? There's only so good it can be, and you don't want it to be too strict. Otherwise, if you have ever so slight, um, you know, dirt or you're slightly slightly sweaty, I'm not talking Cheeto fingers. I'm talking like, oh look, it's 84 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit in, in this room and it's getting a little stuffy. Um, like, how bummer would that be that you can't get it to your phone, right? So there's some fudge. You know, sometimes if, I, if my fingers are wet, I can't. I have to wipe them dry before I can use it. And actually, it's funny because uh, I think we mentioned before that I got Carol uh, an iPhone 7 and she works with her hands all the time. And um, because of the kind of material she works with, she almost like sands her fingerprints off her finger so touch id doesn't work for her like she huh. yeah I, I took a picture of her finger and posted it on the twitter feed a couple of, uh, last week and you can see that there's like no discernible fingerprint at all so and actually justin stanley friend of the show was saying he replied to me saying that it's he has the same problem and so he uses a second or third finger to uh, work with touch id and another point was that um when I was going through Nexus scan on the way to Washington, um, I had, had to stop and talk to the, uh, the TSA guy um, because he was telling me that when you put your fingerprints, your fingers on the Nexus um, scanner to keep your fingers together, because um, in fact, when because when you cross the border, they want to see all four fingers match your profile, um, which is kind of interesting. And, and I think they talk about this in the article that you know using a single fingerprint, like Harmi said, or even just a portion of a single fingerprint, isn't enough security to sort of really to biometrically identify you. Where it's if you were using more than one finger, that may be better a better match, right? Sure, at, at, at the expense of usability, which is where I think the trade off sort of comes from, right? And there's in my mind, it seems like there's that sort of machine learning angle, which is where I think uh, this professor was sort of looking at it, right? Of like, how can I, how can I approach this from a slightly different angle? Um, 
I don't know if we talked about this on the show, but mm-hmm. I, I came across an article at some point that was discussing how um, there's some weaknesses in, in typical image recognition, machine learning type um, technology where you can make subtle um, deteriorations to images that are like not perceivable by the human eye right, right. that make it impossible for these things to identify. Oh, really? You know, like, oh. oh, it's like, yeah, that's obviously a cat. Like a two-year-old could tell you that. It's like, well, the machine can't because the normal algorithms that it goes through, um, you know, will fail, right? So if it's trying to do edge detection, well, this adds, you know, subtle demarcations in it that, you know, make it so the edge detection comes out incorrect. And if you can't find the out vague outline of a cat, you're not going to identify that it's a cat as an example. Right. So it kind of makes sense to me that, it, you know, conceptually that this would work in reverse, right? Where like, um, if you know that these algorithms are looking for similar, you know, some particular time kind of thing, some sort of output it wants to look for to see if there's a match. Well, what if you can make subtle changes that make it so that it's much more likely to match is how I internalize what this professor was working on. Sure. Interesting, too, that uh, at RW DevCon, I think I mentioned Alexis Gallagher did a talk on uh, machine learning, and he used, uh, he took a video of, of himself smiling, different smiles, so he kind of moved around, and he split that up into, he, and of course, you know, the, the people in the room got to do the same thing with their own cameras, um, and they split them up into individual frames and then used those frames to educate the, uh, the app, and then they did a series of pictures where they were frowning and like he was doing really exaggerated frowns on you know with his eyebrows tilted down and stuff like that and it was really comical to watch him do it but and then he used the, that to sort of show this is a series of images of persons frowning and uh, when he finished the, the at the near the end of the demo he went to grab a picture of himself smiling and the the computer said he was frowning right and he sort of said oh that's interesting you know it's a sort of live you know on the spot uh, demonstration that not always it's not always possible for machine learning to be 100% accurate, just like you're saying. And in fact, he asked people to raise their hands in the room who were able to successfully match a smile versus those who who incorrectly matched the smile or it said they were frowning. And I'd say about 20% of the room said that their their max said that they were um, they were frowning when in fact they were smiling. So interesting result. Mm-hmm. It's early. It's our, yeah, it's, it's early days for all this stuff. So there's still a lot to go. We should ask Dr. Ruman what he thinks of this. Uh, what about it? Uh, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, so this is. I mean, these are. This is pretty hot stuff right now. All this um, machine learning and, and, in particular, convolutional neural networks uh, are really good at uh, at recognizing things in images. Uh, and yeah, you know, the interesting thing about them is that they're not classifying the images based on. Well, I shouldn't say that. The, the things that the, the network can recognize inside the image that leads it to believe that it is of a type of thing are not necessarily things that are at all recognizable to a, to the human looking at it. Um, so, so the fact that it doesn't recognize a smile uh, or does or or thinks it's a frown means that it's training on other stuff in the image that it's right, to right. recognize that that this is a picture of you, for example, right. as opposed to a picture of somebody else. So, so I mean, this is this is kind of a limitation of of both the network itself uh, in in terms of the number of degrees of freedom uh, that the network has and the amount of data that you use to train it. Uh, right, right. So, yeah. so in general, if you increase those, then then uh, you can you can pick up more features. Although, without getting too much into detail, that that can go too far. You can get something called overfitting, where where uh, you you basically have a model with so many 
free parameters that you fit to the noise in the in the data right, uh, right. rather than the actual features so so then you can get you can have something that fits your model it fits your training data perfectly but then when you apply it on some other factor some other uh, piece of data outside of your training set your test set it can it can fail uh, so it could be any of those things it's, it's hard to say uh, but um, and it sounds to me like it was a case of you know just limited amount of time, limited amount of of uh, of uh, you know processing power for this demo. Sure, yeah, yeah, and yeah. They, they probably could have improved that. Yeah, I think we used like ten images for each each yeah. scenario, right? So yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, so it's just uh, not nearly enough training data. No, for, for sure, for sure. Well, and it's like that yep. Google Draw uh, yeah. site that we looked at. I think that was actually in the in my Twitter feed again today. Something to do about Google Draw, but isn't that the idea? Was that it was that I think uh, I forget whose pick it was, but it was you draw you draw what it tells you to draw, and then what you're actually doing is educating the uh, learning engine. Right, term, right, right. That's so. that's not necessarily a convolutional neural network. That might just be a standard neural network. It's all uh, magic to me, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you should do a uh, RW uh, tutorial on. Well, there is a number, number of them already. There is a number already on them. That's oh, what I'm saying. Okay. That Ale- uh, 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 Alexis Gallagher already did one, so it's fine. I see. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, then maybe and, you should actually read it. <laughs> yeah, no, I should. Yeah, yeah. I think. Well, see, the the thing was that when I walked into that session, um, I actually was uh, there was some link on the screen that that because there, there was some sort of there were some prerequisites you had to do before you walked into the sessions, but in some cases they actually had extra stuff that you had to download from GitHub. Like I think before Marin's um, talk, uh, there was a bit of a delay because um, somebody had updated something on GitHub that broke the broke the demo, so he had we had to actually pass around a USB stick with a good version of uh of the framework to use right so you know what happens it's in the cloud it's going to change right like the weather anywho mm-hmm. all right so i guess we should uh do some picks now what do you think so mark, do you have Sounds mark good. do you have a pick i got nothing <laughs> you got nothing okay well we'll come back to that <laughs> so uh hi there what do you got uh i have two quick ones um one is uh about the new features in xcode's 8.2 simulator uh yeah, we just talked about the fact that 8.3 is out not too long ago. Yep. Uh, this is new to me because I didn't know these features were there. Uh, the two most interesting ones I found were the ability to, from the command line, capture images and capture video, which is really mm-hmm. handy. Uh, capturing video of the simulator itself is sometimes uh, a pain in the neck. So this article by uh, Bart Den Hollander has, uh, has that. And there's other things, too, like, you know, you can drag and drop um uh, like apps onto the simulator. So that, that's pretty cool rather than having to like go tinker around with the file system, um, yeah. getting the app bundle from derived data. But if you're like me, um, that ability to cr- record MP4s or MOV files from the simulator is super handy when you're trying to show somebody uh, this feature you're working on, or maybe you're asking or somebody, bug, like, right, yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. can you reproduce the bug? Show me in QA. Sounds much more convenient than the old way of hooking it up through QuickTime and, and uh, you know, recording a, a movie off of the the phone onto QuickTime and then saving it much more convenient than that. It sounds like. Yeah. And, yeah. and certainly recording from the device itself has its place, but sometimes like I want to see like, is this just a simulator bug? You show me, show me both sort of thing. I want to see the same yep. scenario and in, in, in both. Yep. Mm-hmm. Cool. That is neat. I'm sure there are some new features in 8.3 too, but we don't know what they are yet. <laughs> Hopefully people write articles so I can be like, Oh great. And I, I can bring everybody, you know, this, this wonderful, bountiful news. 
So what else you got for us there, Jaime? The next bit of news is from Apple itself. Uh, it's specifically what's new in test flight. So now, as of, well, yesterday from this recording, you can have multiple builds. So you can distribute and test multiple builds at the same time rather than having one and only one. Um, you can have um, groups in different builds. So uh, you can almost do like an A-B test sort of thing. of Like, well, let's see if this group deals with this in a different way than this other group. Um, and testers can continue testing a build when it goes live on the app store, which is oh, wow. yeah. probably one of the best things that has been rather uh, painful to deal with, um, particularly with folks who don't necessarily understand like the difference between getting from the app store and getting from test flight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so these are both great things. Um, I'm glad to see it happen. Uh, as some of my colleagues noted, uh, the old test flight, uh, an entire presidential administration ago was able to do this. So it's kind of like a little bit sad in that respect, but I look forward and I say, Nope, this is more capable now than it was before. If only because you can have something like 2000 external testers. So oh, really? uh, hmm. two steps forward, one step back. Uh, I think I'm fine. You know, just take a couple more steps. Yeah, no, the idea of multiple builds is good, too, because if you want to work on a quick... Like, we talked... About, I, I mentioned Gitflow to Mark a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that we do with Gitflow is is um, you have your develop branch, and then you have your feature branch, and you have a bug fix branch, but you might also have a hot fix branch, and so the hot fix is usually for making those quick, you know, uh, one-line, two-line changes that need to go up on the App Store right away, um, and this way you could sort of have... You could have your, your new feature coming out in, in the next release build, in, in your test flight thing, and you can have a small group over here doing that hot fix test test that you want to do, and fire that out to the app store. So, because I, I, I'm actually in a situation right now where I've where I've got a personal app I'm working on that that there's a there's a, a an immediate need to get a, a patch up onto the app store version, but there's also a, a new feature that we've just you know refactored. We want to test out to make sure it's working, and normally we'd have to wait for you know the whole thing to go through QA to get it onto the store, but. Um, be having to be able to, to be able to have multiple builds, like you said, is kind of cool because you could just you know quickly test small features, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and and the group thing, I, I haven't tried this out, but one thing with the old test flight and and even hockey app when I've used that in the past, to, just to save my sanity, um, I would enable it or enable the build specifically only for myself, so that when I did a release, I could check run through a, a couple of you know smoke tests just to make sure it was a decent build because mm-hmm. you know bad things happen sometimes because I was in an environment where, um, you know, everybody was legitimately trying to be helpful, but at some point it becomes not helpful when like 20 people are all pinging me, you know, frantically about the same, you know, show stopping bug that I'm already aware of and I'm already trying to fix. Right. (laughs) So it's kind of nice to have like a small distribution and say, okay, looks good. Pass it along to everybody. Um, once it looks like it's good enough, I I hope this supports that. and And if it doesn't, uh, there's always, you know, there's always next year. <laughs> <laughs> Four more years. Yeah. Well, right. the good the good thing about this, the best thing is that it's it's another improvement that Apple has done in the whole app submission and testing and and approval process. And uh, we've you know we've, we've been talking about this for probably about a year or so that they that Apple is planning new changes and, and rolling out things and and we've actually seen a whole bunch. We've seen the faster turnaround times on the approvals. We've seen the ability to comment on comments, and now we're seeing this. So so it's really great to see that Apple really seems to be taking this stuff seriously and trying to improve the, the whole submission flow. Yeah, and, and I think kind of going along with that, 
uh, it's nice. I mean, here we are. This is in April that we're sitting in. And this is the sort of thing that, you know, in years, years past would have been like, oh, you know, they're going to mention this during the platform State of the Union. It's like, well, maybe mm-hmm. not in this case. Like, what would be the point? It'd be old hat by then, right? It'd be three months old at that point or two months old. Uh, so I'm excited to say like, oh, well, what did they fill that time with then? Right? Like this sort of stuff. <laughs> you <Stickers>. know, they, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not saying it'd be good things, but at least there'll be right. more things, right? There's only so much time to go in that, that platform state of the union, and if it's not spent on like minor upgrades, well, not minor, but uh, you know, modest upgrades to, to test flight, I'm, I'm happy for whatever it is. Yep. Yep. Well, that being said, if you can't live without your MTJC sticker, you can download the Pied Ape Countdown app and it includes an MTJC sticker. Oh, shameless plug. Very <laughs> nice. <laughs> a little cross promotion. Does, uh, uh, does Geese Squad also have uh, secret stickers we should be aware of? Um, does Geese Squad even have stickers? I can't remember. Did I? I think I did put stickers in Geese Squad. I can't remember if I published it or not. <laughs> Maybe I did. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Flapping geese and oh yes, there is a there is an Easter egg uh, sticker. If I did publish, I'd have to check. I don't know. <laughs> I think I published it. I'm not sure. Maybe you can use different test flight groups to see how people react to the existence yeah, or not existence yeah. of yeah. stickers. Yeah, now you're making me think. Different <laughs> stickers collect all four. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I can have different covers, right? Now we can have different icons, yeah. right? Yep. So yep. special special covers. We can have sub- subscriber covers. We can have you know. Newsstand covers, that kind of stuff. Cool. All right. So um, I kind of stole Mark's pick this week because I got nothing, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, I, I saw this video, and I think you guys have said you've seen a vi- the video as well. But, yeah, it's a it's a, a, a sort of a, a mock um, mockumentary kind of uh, presentation of an app that doesn't really exist. But uh, it talks about, you know, in this world of cluttered, you know, uh, in-your-face applications, uh, they've come up with this uh, app. Uh, called from the minimalists called nothing and uh, for those of you driving at home it, it, it the icon is a plain white icon you tap on it it opens a plain white sc- white screen you know no interface to clutter your experience and you know sort of just get into this zone where if you're eating a salad you can open up the nothing app and you know enjoy the salad while you're using your phone at the same time so um sort of uh it's right up my alley in terms of like a, a jokey kind of concept um i remember in university i wrote a um, an article on nothing at one point. You guys had a look at this. What do you think of it? I think it's great. <laughs> I mean, I, I, but uh, a picture's worth a thousand words, even if it's a picture yeah. of nothing. So check out sure. the video. Yeah, you need to check the video for sure. Mm-hmm. Stop your car. Mm-hmm. We'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For, for your sure. train, if you happen to be in a train. Well, you don't have to stop the train if you're, you can, you know, you can join the nothing while you're riding on the train. I guess so that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I love the part where they talk about the UX design guys spending all the time yeah. working on it. <laughs> all right. I wonder what Apple would do. Seriously, if you if you if you actually created an app called Nothing and you put it up on the App Store and it just opened up to a white screen, would they even notice? Like, do they? Does the review process like it wouldn't crash, right? You know, and it would do what it says on the tin. So, what what could they possibly say about about your app, right? Other well, it, has to, it has to provide substantial content, right? There's a rule about that. Oh, is there? A, yeah, yeah. That's the nothing clause, right? Yep. The anti-nothing <laughs> clause. Right. <laughs> the no-nothing clause. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe it can make a fart sound. I don't know. Yeah. That's true. It doesn't say about not making sounds. You know, It could just be like Brian Eno kind of soundtrack or something. Anywho. Just All white right. noise. Yeah, white noise. Yep. 
Yep. Of course, yes. Or pink noise, if you like. Or pink noise. Uh, actually, one of the comments in the in the YouTube video is, is, how about nothing in black so you can save on battery life, too? <laughs> <laughs> Dark mode? <laughs> yeah, night shift mode, for sure. Right. <laughs> it, all right. Well, I guess that's it for the week. Uh, so, hey, uh, Jaime, if people want to get a hold of you on the interwebs, where would they look? The best place is on Twitter. I'm at Dev with the Hair. At Dev with the Hair Metal. Um, and, Mark, if people want to get a hold of you? Mark R at Smapsoft.com or at Smapsoft. Cool. I think you should actually change the name of your... You know how you can change your name in your uh, your Twitter there, Jaime? Mm-hmm. You should change it to ha- at Dev with the Hair Metal. <laughs> 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 Just for the week, before the episode comes out. <laughs> the people will be like what the hell is he doing they'll be all confused yeah for sure alright as I said at the top of the show I'm Tim Mitra I'm T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on Twitter and that's the best way to get a hold of me because I really only pay attention to Twitter alright until Twitter becomes the next thing or whatever we have to move on to something else alright and we'll say goodbye for next week and we'll see you bye bye, bye. And thus ends another episode of More Than Just Code. This is friend of the show, Katie. And another friend, Jesse. We hope that you enjoy the show as much as we do, including the parts about code. And also the parts about more than code. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode, with links to the items talked about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website. And if you can, please rate or review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. All of these things help others find out about the show, and we really appreciate your help with spreading the word. The show is also on Twitter and Facebook, the Twitter account being MTJC underscore podcast. You can also support the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. That's what we do. Thanks for listening with us. Let's either have the same amount of fun or more next time. So, uh, airplanes, how about that? We, we touched briefly, ever yeah, so briefly, on the United, United, on the United, United thing. thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, you know, it's funny, as I, I was going to say, like, it, it really, I'm actually, like, you know, as much as I was worried about coming into the United States back in February just because of all the nonsense, but now 360 IDEV, right, which flies into Denver, the Air Canada flights that are, that, are, that will go into uh, into Denver are operated by United. Oh yeah. <laughs> so because that's a United. Well, app, yeah. Right? Unfortunately, it's just not practical if you're going to fly in the U.S. to to have a complete boycott of United because if you fly enough, at some point you pretty much have to fly United. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's too bad. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's funny, like, I, I, from what I've heard about the story was that, you know, everybody sort of, said it, sort of said no, so they went to a computer and just ran a lottery, right? So it's like reverse lottery in this case, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it really took an entire system of things to break down in order for this mm-hmm. to really happen when I examine it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, let's take, for example... Like I actually don't know the authorities. I don't know if they were Chicago police or some sort of special aviation uh, authority. Uh, In any case, the important thing is they're not United employees or contractors, right? right? Like, if you remove the fact that those guys, for whatever reason, uh, were like very violent with this guy, it's a non-issue, right? We we never would have heard about it, right? 
right? Uh, if it was, um, critically, it's not an overbooking situation because it was a full flight, not an overbooked flight, right? Mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I haven't seen addressed is, uh, why were they so intent on putting their people on that flight? Um, a lot of folks be like, oh my gosh, it's only like four hours drive. I'm like, mm, okay, but there's particular rules about how flight crew uh, and their working hours and stuff for, for safety reasons where I would wager that they were desperate to get them on that flight because they would just be able to get them under whatever yeah. safety rule of like, we can fly them there. And then that other plane can take off with this crew. Otherwise right, we're delaying right. that plane, yeah. right? We're yeah, delaying right. an entire plane. Um, yeah, you're probably right. And the, the other thing that they should have done getting back to the whole system, like their own system in this case is like, yes, I, I know the rules are, are very particular around um, what you are legally required to, to give as minimum compensation for bumping people, but that's a minimum compensation. There's no maximum. Right. So if they, if they had just said, you know what? All right. No, nobody wants to volunteer. Okay. It's not 800. It's a thousand dollars. Anybody? No. Okay. Now it's 1200. No. Right. Okay, at some point, if you're offering Those like $2,000. Start, start right? going up at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually yeah. somebody be like, screw this. I'll stay there. Yeah. I'll take the $2,000. Right. It could have gotten to the point where, where they had reached the 11th hour and they had to make a decision. And that may have been, you know, they couldn't just keep, you know, playing this, this, uh, you know, what's behind door number three deal until people. No, they're chose they're it, just right? not offering enough. I mean, at some point, you know, you have, you have the prospect of United's going to uh, give you enough to stay at a, five-star hotel with all the amenities and get a free flight out of it and get them to fly you back the next day, right? I mean, at that point, you know, I would do it. Sure, why the hell not? Yeah, yeah. I might too. Yeah. yeah. And and they, uh, while they were doing that, they, they, like, he had a reasonable reason, right? It's like, I'm a doctor. I've got patients I have to go see. Right. Um, so they could have been like, all right, well, the computer picked that guy. Well, let, let's find another. Surely there must be, like, you know, a single teenager or something. <laughs> Who can stay yeah. here or like a yeah. college kid or some, some other, like, you know, you are more flexible with this sort of thing, right? right? Like it didn't have to be like, forget it. This guy doesn't want to move. Call the, the authorities and, and get into it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that was yeah. okay as a solution, um, but it, it became dangerous and, and it turned yeah. out <laughs> terrible for them as it turned out. Yeah. Well, they had already made the mistake at that point. They, they really should have, they should never have let everyone get on the plane. They should have known this and and made that decision before people boarded. And then it's just not nearly as controversial, right? This happens all the time. You get bumped before you you, never, you don't even get a boarding pass. Really? Sure, sure. Mm. That's the that's a, uh, the traditional. Uh, well, but you get a boarding pass, but but before anyone boards, they'll say you know who wants to give up their seat in exchange for right, right. a couple hundred bucks. And and there's almost always someone who does it. But but once you're on the plane. And you're sitting there, ready, waiting to take off. You know, you're much less likely to, to do it at that point. Yeah, of course. You yeah, yeah. You're all settled, and you got your bags checked, and exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's sort off. of like the larger, longer term system thing. Where like, if they weren't trying to keep their their costs like down to the bone, staff right. wise, they 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 could have one percent more staff to make sure that there's you know enough accommodation. They're not realizing, oh crap! At the last second, if we don't get these. You know, flight crew on here, we will have to delay or cancel this other plane. Like, you shouldn't be in that situation. Like, these schedules are well known. 
Yeah, I just don't understand how they oversell or overbook flights. But uh, it's interesting. On the way back from Washington, I got to witness the Southwest system what you were talking about, Mark, where you have the the pools by letter, and people stand at their sort of right. pole yep. and they wait until their their letter is called. Yep. And, and what do you do? You just basically go on the plane and decide where the hell ever the hell you want to sit is where you sit. Like, yeah. if, if you, you want to sit at the back of the plane, you sit there. If you want to sit in the middle of the plane, you sit there. Or do people tend to sit at the front if they get on first, sort of thing? Uh, I do, <laughs> but not everybody does. I don't know. Uh, you might. I mean, people have. You know, people choose different things, right? If you want to, some people have a particular thing they want—a window seat or an aisle seat—and they may move to the back just to make sure they can get one. Or I don't know. I try right. to. I try to get a aisle seat at the front. <laughs> that's that's my thing. Actually, now that but you mentioned different. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, we were flying to Ottawa once with my mom and uh, Carol and I, and uh, my mom's in her eighties, and um, so we thought flying to Ottawa would be the path of least resistance. And and you're right, when we got to the bo- to the gate where we were getting our boarding passes, they told us that they were bumping me and Carol and just letting my mother fly by herself, uh, and, which wasn't going to fly. You know, that wasn't going to work. But yeah, no but, pun intended. Yeah, I mean, but if I could afford it and. Uh, you know, afford the time, or at least I had an under. I mean, I have an understanding employer now. Um, you know, or when I was working for myself, I could have, yeah, an extra yeah. couple of hours or a day or whatever wouldn't have hurt me much. In fact, last year when I was coming back from two years ago, I think when I was coming back from RWDevCon, um, my f- I couldn't land in Toronto because it was a snowstorm apparently, right? So they canceled our flight. So then that was a case where I had to go, and uh, fortunately I had insurance on my Visa card that let me stay at a hotel and fly the next day, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Tim, sort of like addressing the overbooking thing and and the tips that have come out regarding like how can you avoid being bumped and you know checking in <laughs> twenty four hours before and and having some yeah. sort of airline status and right, right. Uh, and other stuff like like I mentioned this on 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 Twitter like the reason airlines treat customers like dirt is because we customers incentivize them to do so right like. Uh, and the opposite of that is, is showing loyalty of some sort, even something as simple as like just having a darn, like, even if it's not a very popular one, like you're not using it a lot, but just like, oh, I, I do have a rewards or loyalty card uh, or loyalty account at the very least uh, that will separate you from other people. Right. And yep. like, as far as the, the over booking thing goes, like the, given the way that they do tickets in in redemption they kind of have no choice but to overbook realizing that most of the time it works out okay you know they book uh, 110 percent let's say realizing that well if 10 percent of people that we see historically don't show up for the flight we're a fully booked flight then then we everything works out okay um it, it's rather unfortunate when, when you end up getting bumped uh it although not uncommon it's also not like every flight right you don't see that happen like think about how outraged people would be if it's like you know hey i bought this ticket and if it was like you know go buy a movie ticket right go buy the 7 p.m showing on friday night don't show up on friday night and see if you can convince them to let you into the saturday evening show so Mm -hmm. they'll be like no we had your ticket your seat was there and you didn't show up you're gonna have to give us another ten dollars like airlines in hotels and stuff they could do that but it it would be chaos like people would hate it imagine absorbing five hundred dollars just because you couldn't make it right like your car broke down or Uh you know your grandma got sick or something right like people would hate it like that that would be a worse situation i'm not saying (laughs) you know i'm not saying they should beat people like what ended up happening in this case uh but the other side is like not tenable for for the airline industry yeah, did you see their last customers. update? The United Airlines app last update notice said uh, new drag and drop feature. 
<laughs> that, that was Photoshop, right? Like I never, I didn't actually. Oh, uh, was check. it really? Uh, <laughs> like no I way. assumed it was because I was like, I don't think there is a drag and drop feature in iOS that I've ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you noticed on on Saturday, Saturday morning. So, I think it was Friday night. Yes, got uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by um, none other than Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson from Rush. Right. So, right. yeah. So then I had to watch the them, them play Roundabout and uh, with Getty Lee on bass, and I did. Uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart, right? So with, with Rabin, I guess he was on there for that one. Yeah. So. Although I do got to say, when I saw Anderson, Rabin, Wakeman live, they did a really, really nice version. Wakeman got out the uh, the guitar. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and of course, he was wearing a cape. And, and he and Trevor Rabin started walking through the through the audience with the guitar right. and the guitar. Right, Playing yes. jamming on Owner of the Lonely Heart. That was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, and they sat. Well, you're talking about the when you saw them live, or when you saw them do the saw them live. It? Oh, because they did that again at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, they did. Right. Oh, yeah, they they went and sat in the audience while they were playing. Oh, okay. Right. Oh, I didn't see yeah. that. No, I'm, ta- yeah, I'm yeah. talking about when I saw them live. No, I guess it must be their shtick, right? So yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're both doing, they're both uh, playing off each other at that point, I think, right? Right, right. Yeah. And it's funny because uh, somebody posted a picture of um, Steve Howe is playing uh, Rickenbacker bass for that song, right? Mm. And somebody posted a picture of uh, Steve Howe saying, Getty Lee sure has gotten old real quick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, That's so there's the after show. Let's, <laughs> let's see the show now. <laughs>